Church, today we are continuing a conversation that we started last week about how as a church family, we're not starting a foster care ministry, we're becoming a foster care church. And today, excuse me, last week we talked about how the biblical commands to uh, righteousness and justice is all throughout your scripture and that this is not a means of charity for us, it's primarily a means of justice, the way that God defines righteousness and justice. We we believe that it's the core call that God has for his people. And so uh, we're stepping today into uh, our approach, thinking about our origin story. So for Jesus followers, how does uh, following Jesus and our, our origin story about following Jesus, how does that shape our understanding of foster care and adoption? So we're going to be in uh, the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 14 and on. If you guys have a Bible, feel free to turn there. If you are joining us online uh, and don't have a Bible, you can just, uh, just go to Bible.com and uh, type in Romans 8, and you'll find it there, verse 14 and on. If you're uh, joining us here, you can certainly use your phone, or we have Bibles available on the tables in the back. If you don't own a print Bible and would like one, please feel free to take one of those uh, as our gift to you. Please don't take 18 and sell them on eBay, though. That's just a little bad form. Uh, so, oh, oh, and huge thanks to the crew. Uh, we had a bunch of folks from our church family yesterday uh, go and join with some folks down at Heritage Church to do a training for uh, refugees, caring for refugees who are being resettled here. Uh, thanks to those of y'all who are a part of that. It's a big deal. Uh, I think we talked about, oh, the last few weeks we've talked about how we uh, had set a period of time because we knew there was an influx of refugees coming to Phoenix from uh, Afghanistan and that they were going to need help getting things like clothing, uh, getting a place to stay, bedding, furniture, stuff like that. And so we just we, we didn't really have a plan. We just kind of winged it. And uh, y'all gave, uh, here's the deal. Um, I don't know what the current number is, and we kind of concluded last week, but as of last Sunday, is that okay? So like stuff that came in between here and there, I don't know what that is. Uh, but we're getting close to about $20,000 that y'all have given uh, for us to be able to give. So that that's awesome. All of that money is going directly to support uh, refugees who are coming to our city. Uh, they're our neighbors. They're our new neighbors. And so we're going to care for them in those ways, providing life-sustaining resources for them. Uh, we also talked last week about uh, the justice and righteousness that God calls us to be just, specifically towards uh, what one theologian calls the quartet of the vulnerable. You'll often find these uh, categories of persons named together in your Bible. So uh, the widow, uh, the orphan, and the foreigner. And just, just for, I just want to dive a little bit more into that today, that the origin story, the, one of the things that God consistently says to his people is the reason that you are to care for the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor is because you yourselves were once slaves in Egypt. You'll find that. You just go to your Bible. I hope you guys all read your whole Bible today. And when you read your whole Bible later today, you will discover that consistently God calls his people to uh, act justly and righteously, specifically toward the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poor, because they shared an identity in that same space before they were called out of Egypt. So at the beginning of your Bible, uh, the second book of your Bible, Exodus, is a story of people going from uh, poverty, a powerlessness, marginalization, slavery, to becoming a people of God's own possession. And so he says, because I did that for you, you do that for others. You all with me so far? Okay. The origin story of God's people compels them to act in a specific way now in like real livesies. 
Our origin story shapes how we are behaving, should shape how we are behaving now. And so what I want to look at today is, in light of who Jesus is, what is the origin story of a Jesus follower? I have a question for you. How do you relate to God? Now, I'm not talking about, like, just any old God here. I'm specifically, if, you, if you'll give me the permission, I'm specifically talking about the triune God, the one we say is God the Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who became manifest in the person of Jesus the Christ. So, so just the triune God, like the real living God. How do you relate to God? Is your relationship to God like you're a religious adherent to some sort of system? Is your relationship with God like enemy, like not on great terms? Is it estranged? How would you describe your relationship with God? There is a consistent call in your Bible, which you're going to read tonight all the way through, to view God, for those, because of who Jesus is, we view God as a father or as a child does views a father. That the relational connection is between child and father. So how might that shape your understanding? Let's dive into it. So I want to give you a little backstory. Um, some of this is going to be a little bit like Western civilization history. Some of it's just going to be a little bit trivial, but I hope that you guys will bear with me. I'm going to do a big, big, big setup, then the punchline, and then we're going to get practical. Cool? Here's the big, big, big setup. Okay, so if you were to imagine, so everyone imagine that you're back in what sometimes is called Bible times. Everyone say Bible times. Bible times. Now, Bible times is actually a long swath of time, and you kind of depend on where you're talking about when it was written, what the context of which it was talking about. But anyways, we'll just say back in Bible times. Okay, so back in Bible times, like during the peak of the Roman Empire's power, if you were uh, a Roman citizen just kicking around someplace like, I don't know, Rome, and uh, you uh, were walking down the street, I want you to imagine this, so you're walking on a cobbled paved street, you've got your, what are you wearing in ancient Rome? What are you wearing? What is it? Yeah, like a toga, yeah, and in what color toga are you wearing? White toga, yeah, cool, because I, I wear blue and silver, go Cowboys. So my blue and silver toga and, and your white toga, and you're walking down the street, and, and there's all these beautiful big buildings all around you, right? And there's Roman centurions, and they're kind of marching down the street, you know, looking quite gruff. And, and you would also see, frequently, you would see temples to different gods. It was totally common. You and I, if we were to go maybe to uh, Rome today, which if you want to invite me on your trip, that sounds awesome. But if we were to go to Rome, we would look around at like ruins of these still magnificent temples. And if you were to go to one of these temples, like a temple to Zeus or a temple to Artemis or whatever, and they're kind of all over the place, you would kind of pick and choose which gods you wanted to worship or depending on the cultural moment and your family line, you might inherit and say like, oh, oh our family worships this, this sequence of gods or whatnot. And you would pray to one god maybe for fertility, one for uh, power, one for business dealing, et cetera, one for the cowboys to win. You gotta have different gods that do different things. And you would be walking down the street in your toga, and you would see all these temples, and you would see all these gods. Now, I want you to zoom in on your feelings. I want you to zoom in just on that moment, right? You're walking down the cobbled street. You've got your toga on. You see all these different gods. You see all these statues of these gods. What would your ancient self's relationship to those gods be like? Talk to me. Servant? 
Would you feel uh, like endeared to them? Would you feel like they're easily approachable? Might you feel a little bit of fear? And, and if something bad happened in your life, like a business dealing went south or somebody got real sick in your family, what might you think that the gods might be thinking about that? That they're punishing you, right? You didn't do enough sacrifice. You didn't serve the God enough, right? The relationship between that toga-wearing ancient you self to the gods was primarily, we could articulate it maybe as that of a servant or maybe even a slave. And so, uh, and by the way, slavery was uh, like super common in the Roman Empire. Uh, in fact, uh, some historians will argue that anywhere from 25 to 50% of Rome at the time was enslaved, maybe even more. And so you might even say, like, I'm kind of like a slave. Okay, now the other thing that we need to know about uh, your ancient Roman self is that this social dynamic, the way that things were structured is at the very top of, like, government, at the very top of power was whom? Caesar. And Caesar had like a crown, and Caesar had an army, and if Caesar wanted you dead, what happens? You dead, okay? So if Caesar wanted you dead, you dead, okay? So Caesar is like the boss king, right? He's the emperor over like all of Rome, right? And then you would kind of go to like, maybe it depends on how, what period of time it was in, but you'd have different like governors and different power brokers and, and princes and rulers and whatnot, and you'd kind of get down to the basic foundation of, of government, or you get to the basic foundation of civilization. At the basic foundation in that Roman moment was the family. And I want to just be real clear. I want to just press the TV time out for a minute. Have you ever heard the phrase like on TV, like these sappy TV things that are like, we have family values. Have you guys ever heard that phrase before? What does that mean? Do you know that every human society has family values? They just may value family completely differently than you do. In the Roman context, the family was structured like a mini empire. The, the, who was the king of Rome? Caesar. Okay, so there was like miniature Caesars over the home. The, the father, the dad, was kind of like a, a mini king of his household. So he had his domain, which was his household. Now, you have to remember that at this point in time in human history, biz, there was no such thing as work life and home life. Everything was just what? Life. Right? So, like, you did all your business, by and large, you did all your business at the same place that you lived, unless you were a soldier and got shipped off or a merchant. But by and large, your business and your family were interwoven. And by and large, all of your children were involved in the business. They, they didn't do, like, the, hey, honey, I'm going to work today. Everything was, like, all right there. And so, the household was, like, the domain of the mini-king, the dad. You guys tracking? Now, some of you, I've heard people say, like, um, like, the man is the king of his, what's the thing that no one actually believes anymore? But, like, the man is the king of his household or something like that. Well, that came from this idea, right? And so, dad. So, dad is the mini king. Now, here's the jam. The dad could literally have people within his household executed, depending on the, current, the particular social moment. He had legal rights that we don't necessarily understand today. And, and he also had the capacity to dispense his goods uh, to, uh, to his children, to anyone, but by and large, what so if, if dad had a bunch of kids and there was uh, boys and girls and dad died, where did all that power and resource go? Generally speaking, it went, the lion's share of it went to the firstborn son. Okay? So all the power, all that, like, all the power 
all the resource, the inheritance from the Father goes to the Son. Now, by the way, I'm not arguing for this. I'm just telling you the context because it's going to make sense of the scripture. We're going to read it in a moment, all right? So in this moment, the father was like the mini king. And if you were the father, if you were the mini king of your household, of your domain, and you wanted to bring some people in, you wanted to add uh, the the person count to your kingdom, you had a couple of options. You you might have had a few more. But the two primary options was, number one, uh, make babies. You could procreate and thus produce more, what's the word? Children. You could have sons and daughters. And if you had sons and daughters, they had legal rights, specific legal rights. They had an inheritance. They had a name. They also, because if you maintained your household well, uh, they felt peace. They weren't wandering out in the streets begging for bread. If you, if you were born into a, a, a safe home like that, you, you likely flourished. There's another way that the father could bring people into his domain. He could bring them into his household. And the other primary way was to, to uh, bring in slaves, to hire or to buy slaves. Now, slaves at this point in time, a lot of times it was people who were in immense amounts of debt, and so they would sell themselves into slavery in order to pay the debt. Others might be victims of a war, where instead of just killing all of your prisoners, you sell them into slavery. And so if you were a Roman uh, uh, father, you could bring in a slave. Now, <clears throat> here's the deal. A, to bring in a slave to do the family business was... Uh, kind of low risk, because you, uh, let me just ask you a question. If you had a son and you had a slave and the dad dies, where does all the inheritance money go to? The son, right? And what happens to the slave? Well, the slave could just get kicked out. The slave had no claim on the inheritance from the father. The slave also was constantly nervous, constantly wondering, like your old Roman self looking around at these gods, constantly wondering if the father of the domain, the father of the house, was going to kick them out if the slave did not please their master. I want to just press pause for a moment. I know we've been imagining ourselves as a Roman citizen walking down the streets in our very regal togas, or togas, as they say in France. I don't know if that's true or not, but I felt good at the time. Everyone's like, oh, do they, they say toga in France. It's quite weird. Okay, so now we're going to shift your imagination, and I want you to imagine that you are a slave. That the people that you were born to, your family was taken captive during a war. And you were moved a thousand miles away from your homeland to a place where you do not know the language. The only clothes you own are the clothes on your back. You have absolutely zero social capital. And you have just been purchased by an owner of a household, right? The father of the house. And you're also walking down that same street. How do you feel about your future? Talk to me. Fear? You got to yell at me. You guys don't have microphones on. Homeless? Unsure? Helpless? Yeah. Insecure? You're just constantly walking around with this unbelongingness. Have any of you ever felt what it feels like to not belong? To have no home, to have no people, to have no family, to just literally just be wandering. Such it is the lives of many slaves to the best of our ability. Now, this idea of slave 
and being a son or daughter. And I'm going to use a word. It's, a, it's kind of a technical word. I'm going to invite you in um, just, just for a moment, if you would, please. There's a term that sometimes uh, gets translated as sonship. And I want to, I want to just say this real quick. It, it, it could include uh, women as well, but the, it's, it's, juxt, it's a juxtaposition between like a slave, uh, slavery and sonship. There was, there was a way that you could uh, call someone who was not born to you a son. You could entitle them, you could give to them the title or the category of son, or you could bestow upon them sonship. You guys tracking with me? So this idea of slavery or sonship or sons and daughters-ness, this is the Exodus story. If, if for, those of you, if, for those of you who love playing, playing Bible trivia games, anyone? Lot of, okay, so just for those of you that are watching at home, it's not a surprise, no one raised their hands. Okay. Uh, Bible tribute. What was the category, what, like what was the status of God's people in Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus? They were slaves. And then God calls out of Egypt his people and then takes them into the safe, well, structured land flowing with milk and honey. Takes them from slave to sonship. In, um, in, at Christmas time, sometimes we'll hear about the prophet Hosea who says in uh, chapter 11, I think, out of Egypt, I called my son. That journey from slavery, slave, to sons and daughters of God, that is the book of Exodus. Okay, that's the setup. Here's the punchline. How do you envision your relationship with God? How do you imagine it to be? Just using the two categories that we have here, it could be I'm a slave to God. I've got to earn God's love. I've got to earn God's favor. At any point in time, if I do something that gets me on the naughty list, God will disown me. Have you guys ever heard people talk like this before? I'm going to give you something. I hope you never say it. And if you've said it, we're a church of grace. So, all is forgiven. I'm trying to be a good Christian. I'm trying to be a good Christian. I'm just really trying so hard to be a good Christian. And I think I understand sometimes what people mean by that, but by and large, you know what it means? I'm trying to earn God. I'm trying to do enough good stuff so God will love me. Like a slave trying to appease its master. We are not called to be slaves. We're called to be sons and daughters. Chickity, chickity, check. Romans 8, 14 and on. I want you to just listen, read along if you have your Bibles. And I want you just to note the language here. Do you remember that if you were the father of a domain, you're the father of a household, there was two primary ways that you could add more people to your home. Do you remember the two primary ways? What were they? One was to buy slaves. What was the other one? Have children. Okay, those are the two primary ways. But there's actually, there's a secret third option that I didn't mention before. There is a way to bring someone into the family, not to purchase them, not to treat them as subhuman, but to bestow upon them sonship or son and daughterness. Does anyone know what word I might be thinking of? Let's see if it's in the text. 
for all of those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery. Give me time out. How did we feel when we were a slave walking down the cobbled street? What was the primary emotion that we felt? For you did not receive, verse 15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery, what that might feel like, a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of, here's the word, adoption. That's the third option. For a family who has a household to bring someone in who is strange to them, who is us strange to them, the way to bring them in, the third option is to adopt them, bring them into the house, and treat them as, bestow upon them, son or daughterness. Notice what the author, his name's Paul, what he's saying here. Any Roman walking around those cobbled streets knew what it felt like to approach the temple of Zeus. And he says, you don't approach the living God like that. He pushes. Instead, you receive the spirit of, what's the word? Adoption. By whom we cry. So the spirit, right? The spirit is the one by whom we cry. And here's a kind of a weird thing, but chickity chickity check. Abba, Father. Abba, is that English? No, it's not English. It's actually Aramaic. And I think what Paul's doing here is he's quoting Jesus. Jesus, and the Gospel of Mark uh, records this for us, he cries out, Abba, Abba, God, Abba, Father, Daddy, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's slaves? No, that's not right. We are God's children. And if children, also, TV time out, what happens when the dad passes away in human society? Where does all the stuff go? Where does all the privilege go? Where does the inheritance go? It goes to the child, right? To the son, in that case, the firstborn son, but it goes to sons and daughters, even in our common culture. And if children of God also heirs, heirs of God, and listen to this, this is crazy, co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, so the origin story of a Jesus follower is that we were out like slaves wandering around, enslaved, what, he, what Paul argues is, we were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to the power structures of this world, to violence, to rebellion, to greed, to lust, to evil. We were enslaved by it, and we, wa- we were wandering around the street looking for any God. And then the one true God whose household is true and good and justice and just and right. That God. The, have you guys ever heard of God referred to as the Father? Have you guys ever ref, uh, heard the church, and I don't mean the building, I mean the people, the church referred to as God's household? Have you ever heard of uh, God referred to as the king? So he's the king father of his household, which by the way, the whole cosmos is his household. And he brings us into his house, bestowing upon us not the title of slave, but the title of what? Son or daughter. That is the good news. 
that God has taken on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, that he rose on the third day, praise God. And he calls us to follow him. He calls us into his family. And the, uh, some of y'all maybe grew up in this tradition or in a tradition that did this. But there, and it sounds weird to people. I totally get it. I'm not recommending we start. But there's something beautiful about some of the Christian traditions in which they will refer to each other as brother and sister. They'll say things like, hello, sister. And they would respond, hello, brother. And it's kind of weird now, isn't it? But there's something beautiful about it. They're riffing on this very theme, that if God is our father, then our relationship to one another is as brothers and sisters. Okay, you guys got the origin story? Now, the application. How, like, do you think this has anything to do with shaping our response to the fact that there's over 14,000 kids in our state in the foster care system? Like, does this origin story have anything to say to our corporate response to the over 2,000 kids who are living in group homes today? What do you think? Like, obviously, you know what I think the answer is, right? These are hypothetical questions. Of course it does. How might this origin story shape our response as a church to the kids who are currently in foster care? And I just, I'm going to go, I'm going hard on the paint. And I'm not trying to do this to guilt anybody or shame anybody, but I want to ignite your imagination and invite Jesus into this space, okay? So I ain't trying to tell you what to do. I ain't trying to guilt you. But I am trying to make this real. And, he, and here's the thing. Kids in the foster care system are hidden from our eyes. We, we just don't, whether we choose to or whether we buy our own apathy and indifference or maybe it's simply because we've not had the opportunity we can't see. So I'm going to try to just help us see. Does this origin story of the fact that we are entered in, entering into God's household called sons and daughters shape our response to the newborn baby who is currently having their diaper changed by a staff member of a government-funded institution? Does it shape our response to the two-year-old that needs their sippy cup filled up with fresh water? Does it shape our response to helping that three-year-old find the on switch so that they can play with their ABC toys? And then quickly finding the off switch. Anyone who's a parent says amen. Got to love that accessible off switch. What, how will our origin story shape the conversation that a loving parental figure needs to have with the seven-year-old that you cannot have Captain Crunch for dinner every night? How does that shape our response to the need for a loving parental figure They hope the little eight-year-old put together the bead thing with the little pokey thing that pokes your wrist when you wear it, but you wear it anyways. 
who's going to help put the 10-year-olds, the bandage on the 10-year-olds knee when they fell down riding their bicycle, if they even get to learn how to ride a bike. How does this origin story shape our response to the little boy who just wants to throw the football around and feel loved today? How does this shape our response to the need of a 13-year-old girl to be taught by a loving parental figure how to hit one of these darn things without it making your hand go numb? You guys know that thing? You got to hit it just right, sweetheart. How does that shape our response to the need of the 16-year-old to hear that not everything they read in their history class is everything that happened in history. How does that shape our need? To sit with the 17-year-old after she just got broken up with her boyfriend and tell her that I still love you, that God still loves you. How might our origin story as adopted sons and daughters of God, shape our response to these children that are, frankly, they're our neighbors. As a church family, we are committing not to start a foster care ministry, but to become a foster care church. This has already happened. We've already done training with our next-gen leaders and those who serve on our next-gen teams from Adventure Kids through student ministries. We're continuing to do training. Our staff as well being trained up, trying to create partnerships with other churches and other communities so that we can rally together. We're not going to do this alone. But we're stepping into this space knowing that God calls us as a church family to live in light of this origin story. And I believe that now is our moment. All of us have a role to play. There is such a great need, and yet look at how well-resourced the church in Phoenix is. And so we have a role to play. I'm not trying to tell you what your role is. My encouragement to you as your pastor is to invite you into the conversation, jump in the deep end, so to speak, and then just see where Jesus leads you in the moment. I'm going to ask Katie, my friend from AZ-127, to join me up here. She's going to help us put some teeth on this. Now, Katie, today we have a a training, a lunch at... um, uh, 12.30 in our student center. By the way, if you guys have lunch plans, cancel them. Join us at 12.30 in the student center for a lunch with Katie and the AZ-127 team. Uh, and you're going to help all of us find our fit in this. Um, tell us a little bit about AZ-127 and just how, uh, how that impacts foster care. Yeah, so AZ-127 is an entity. It's a ministry that's been around for about 10 years. And it's a collaboration of churches. Churches who are... Um, entering this space just like you guys are doing to say together we believe that the body of Christ can be a part of the solution, right? And so we are working together and by working together these numbers, which actually are actually small, right? Um, we can actually fill the gap and be a part of the solution. That's good. So tell us about like this. I, I threw out some numbers, right, that you gave me uh, last week and this week. Tell us about the state of the union as it relates to foster care in Arizona. So you you already gave the number that there's about 14,000 kids, right? And the child number in Arizona is there's about 1.5 million kids in Arizona, 18 and under, right? And 1% find themselves in foster care. And so it's a pretty small number. And in Maricopa County, 
we need about 500 families. And if you think about all of the large churches that are here, we can actually do this by doing this together, right? And um, we talked about numbers, and I know last week you guys unpacked like a day's number. And so I want to tell you the updated today's number. Uh, tw- it's actually yesterday's. Yesterday, 23 kids came into care for their first time. And of those 23 kids, they ranged between 7 months and 17. And 18 of them were under 8. So when you did this scenario here, like I thought, oh no, he's going to ask me to come up because I'm undone at this point. Because 8-year-olds are in DCS, Department of Child Safety's offices, away from their home. No matter how abusive or neglective it is, they, they have just lost that, that family relationship And they're lost and they're scared. They're in the hard, they're in the dark. And there just is an opportunity for all to step in. So we talked about the 14,000 in the system overall. Overall, yep. And you also mentioned to me, and you mentioned it, I think, today, that there's over 2,000 kids in a group home. Help me understand what that is and how that's kind of different than typical adult homes. Yeah. So this month, there's roughly 2,400 kids in a group home. And the thing, I think we've made that word group home sound nice because in the 50s or 60s, we used to call these orphanages. But we didn't want to be a country that had orphanages. And so we changed that word. We softened that word. And we added the word home um, and group, right? And so we're like, oh, group homes, that must be a good option. And I, I think that's the misconception. I think people don't realize what a group home is and what that experience is like for kids. It's, it's not the TV timeout uh, Annie, right? It's not, it's like, can everyone remember Annie? Or did anyone see the Queen's Gambit, right? Like this group home where people are just in beds, that really is what it's like. And it might be a smaller home. It might be a home with uh, different rooms, not just one big room. But it is still a staff and a child relationship. It is not a parent-child relationship. And that, that really impacts kids. Yeah. And you were telling me that, like, some of them are more like, like 300 kids, like kind of like yeah. the word barracks even. Yep. Some and of them here, there's a, there's a boys' home. We still use the word home, but there's a boys' home with 300 boys in it. And it, it is militant. It is why kids become institutionalized. Even in a small group home, kids become institutionalized because uh, when they go to brush their teeth, they have a cubby, like at school, right? And you pull it out, and your toothbrush and your toothpaste are in it, and you put it back. And there's someone that says, it's toothbrush time. Now, we as parents, we try to do that too, right? But there's this rowdy, oh, did you brush your teeth? Let me check. That, that's, not, that's not playing out, right? It's like, Sam, your turn. Sue, your turn. Matt, your turn, right? It's really, this is where we get that prison to pipeline kind of idea going, because we are just institutionalizing kids um, instead of giving them a home environment. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. And what you just mentioned that there's a there's a it's called a pipeline from foster care into prison, and that a lot of kids who go through the foster care system they just end up in something. And, and you you describe some of the facilities, right? Maybe in our imagination we're we're imagining that. Let me tease out something you said to me. Yeah. Uh, even in some of the worst conditions, having a healthy family can still create a healthy environment, right? Even in the most Spartan conditions. Mm-hmm. 
And what the, po the poverty that we're seeing is not their environment. It's the fact that they don't have a child-to-parent relationship. They have a client-to-government-staff member yeah. relationship. So again, I just want to ask the question, like, how does our origin story as Jesus followers shape our response to the fact that there's eight-year-old kids who, who are currently being raised with a client-to-government uh, um, fu funded um, employee. Yeah. And you had even mentioned that these employees, you know, they're working a job. Yeah, they're working a job. And they're trying really hard and doing their best, but they're just kind of clocking in and clocking out. And yeah. A lot of turnover. Really high turnover because it's, it's, it's hard stuff, right? Yeah. And um, we see that the turnover for staff is a year or less normally. So it's not even... It's not even relationships. And kids are in care normally two to three years um, on average. And there's some kids that find themselves in group homes that have been there four to eight to their whole lifetime until they age out. And so that's, that's all they've ever known, this client-to-child yeah. relationship. As we're hearing this, I know um, many of us are thinking, like, oh, man, it's such a big need. And also, like, hearing about, like, 8-year-olds, 10-year-olds, one of the, vi the video we saw earlier, like, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds, you might be thinking, oh, man, like, am I capable of caring for them? And, 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 and you had shared a story uh, about meeting with somebody who um, really put that in front of your face with the folder. Tell, mm -hmm. tell us that story. Yeah, so I was sharing with Caleb earlier this morning just that a couple years ago, there was an instance where the Department of Child Safety had set up a meeting with a man in his whole department that oversees um, children who are looking for forever homes, right? So that would mean adoption. And um, because they're in foster care, they first entered foster care, their parents lost their right, but now they're looking for forever families. And this man was not happy that he had been asked to meet with a group of people from a church, right? He could not correlate why we would at all have interest. And so he came in to intimidate me and he brought this stack of red folders and he sat it on the table and he puts his hand on it, right? And he's not happy to be here. And we're just trying to hear how can we, if, if you could ask the local church to do one thing, how could we help you, right? And he was like, has his hand on the stack. Can you imagine that on your worst days, everything's written about you? that the things you do in secret are written down into a file. Can you imagine that that's what's kept and it's all noted and it's dictated down? You can't escape any of it. That's what these ch children go through. And he just kind of challenged us with this idea of like, no one, no one has the grace or the mercy or the love to care for these kids, right? And I'm like, ah, oh, struck so hard in the heart because I'm like, that is the picture of Jesus. That, that is us. That is who I am, that I have a red folder in my life, right? And Jesus stepped into the hard things to be mine. And that's what I love about what you guys are doing and your message last week and this week. It's asking people to step in to the hard story that it's unknown what's going to happen, right? But if, if it's not the people of God stepping into the hard story, into that red file, then I'm not sure who in our society is going to do it. Because we are the people that have been shown that love and grace in order to step in and be it for someone else. So uh, we're going to be, uh, let's say thanks to Katie.
AZ-127 has been amazing partners uh, that we've been talking over the last year, getting ready, getting geared up for this, actually. Um, so, uh, like I said, we're hosting a lunch workshop today. Uh, I, I want to encourage you, jump in the deep end and swim shallow. Uh, you know, let the Lord, just be exposed to it, see what God may have for you, and just go in with an open mind and open heart and say, Lord, I'm willing for you to show me whatever it is you have to show me. Again, we're not trying to guilt, shame, pressure anybody. We're not trying to prod people to do it, but we do want to be clear that the need is very real. We are very resourced, and God calls us to live out of our origin story. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dismiss. I did want to say, too, there are, if you're not able to make it today, totally get it. Um, but there's other trainings available uh, around the valley. And uh, even if you just maybe, um, uh, oh, do we have a flyer? I'm completely, I'm going on sabbatical, so I checked out, yeah. We got flyers in the lobby. You can check out their website for other trainings and opportunities to learn more. Uh, let me pray for us before we dismiss. Lord Jesus, you have given to us yourself. Through your death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, you have given to us life and life abundant. Through this work, God, you have called us by the power of your spirit into your family. And you call us your adopted sons and daughters. We are heirs to your goodness, to your mercy, to your grace, to your provision, to your protection, to your justice, to your righteousness. We are yours. And in light of this origin, that once we were slaves, now we have been restored and redeemed. We've been adopted in as your family. In light of that origin story, Lord, just give us the wisdom and discernment by the power of your spirit for each one of us and us collectively as a church family to know what our next step is. We know that the next step is, to look away, is not to look away. We know that the next step is not to do nothing. Lord, we need your discernment. We need your wisdom. We need your guidance to know how it is that you're calling us to move. And we also ask, Lord, that you would empower us to do so, step by step, moment by moment. Jesus, we know that you love us. We ask these things knowing that you're powerful to bring them about. And so we entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you all.